but I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode two of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Mark Carotto, who is a two-time cancer survivor, and we just chat about his journey through two different cancer diagnoses of dealing with pretty rare cancers for someone like him to get, and going from a competitive cyclist to learning how to walk again. And so, really great guy, and I can't thank him enough for sharing his story and being so open and honest about some of the struggles that cancer patients survivors face both going through treatment and following treatment as they try and regain some sort of normalcy into their life. So we'll jump right into the episode and I hope you enjoy it. Mark had uh, sarcoma removed from his leg in 2014 and still rides his bike almost daily. In fact, he told me he just rode 27 miles just to get here and he's going to ride 27 miles to go home. So uh, there's several people that question his sanity at times, but really good dude. So thanks a lot, Mark, for, for coming in and, and coming on the show with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's just chat about your background. Uh, why don't you give folks an insight into to who you are and, and what, you know, what you're about? Thank you. Um, I'm just a guy. Uh, I was a middle-of-the-pack bicycle racer who uh, contracted sarcoma in the year 2014. It's a cancer of the muscle, fat, or bone, and it generally strikes 15 to 29-year-olds. Um, and it's 1% of cancers. When I contracted at age 54, I was, again, another 1%. So I was 1% of 1%, uh, which was crazy. And generally, people with sarcoma have no symptoms. They feel a lump, uh, and it's what I did. And um, I was training for the upcoming season, uh, 2014, and actually uh, I was in the gym. I was setting personal, personal records for... Um, how much weight I was pushing around with my legs. And so when I found this bump and it was diagnosed, I, I was shocked because I felt great. How soon? So you felt a lump out of nowhere exercising one day? Or did you, well, had you had felt something? No, at, after I worked out, I use a roller. Right. And there was a knot. And so as I tried to roll it out, it didn't hurt. And it was kind of like, okay, I can't, I can't roll this out. It's kind of strange. And I did what any American male would do. I, <laughs> I ignored it for about three weeks. Uh, it was always there post-workout. Uh, eventually, my wife said, let's go see the general practitioner, and I did. Um, he took an MRI, and he said, you're heading to the hospital. You're going to go down and get this checked out. Then I got sent to the James, and uh, Tom Scharschmidt, who's an orthopedic oncologist there, did a biopsy, and he said, you know, this is sarcoma, and we're going to take care of it. The interesting thing is, and this is why I, I'm very uh, glad that I met him, there's two orthopedic oncologists there. One is uh, Joel Mayerson, and the other one is Tom Scharschmidt, 
And Scharschmidt was a college football player. He's an athlete, and, and he understands uh, a little bit about what goes in your brain when you're an athlete. So the normal treatment for sarcoma generally is um, radiation first to tr shrink the tumor and then cut it out. Um, and when he went to what's called the tumor board, you know, the radiologist and the, the chemo guy and all the surgeons, um, he advocated to just cut it out as opposed to radiate it because, as he told me, it would have destroyed a lot of tissue around it because um, it was pretty deep. And um, that probably would have kept me off the bicycle. Um, so he kind of went to bat for me, you know, took the radiologist off the table and went straight to surgery. And that was, it was like diagnosed and surgery in 10 days. What was that diagnosis like for you? Were you, were you on your <laughs> own with him or how, you know, he says, this is what this is and this is what it looks like. How did, how did you react initially to that? Just, the, just as I am right now, it was just kind of silence. I, I, I have no concept. I said, it doesn't hurt. It's no pain. I feel great. I was setting records in the gym. I don't understand this. Um, where does it come from? And he just kind of said, we have no idea. Um, so I said, okay, what do we do? And the thing I liked about it, him and his approach, is we attacked. Um, he said, we're going to cut this out. You know, there's a 50-50 chance it will come back uh, in the first two years. If you get by the first two years, you're in pretty good shape. Um, but it can come back, and I've known some sarcoma patients. It comes back in the same spot, or it is in your lungs. Uh, so they check my lungs, and, you know, they, they MRI the, the spot. Um, so my initial reaction was, and he said, let's attack, and that was right for me. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd never been in the hospital in my life. Uh, I had, you know, well, let me check that. I've had some bicycle crashes and races and, <laughs> and shoulders, and I've done shoulders and collarbones and things like that, but that isn't exactly illness. That's self-inflicted, generally, stupidity. So the first kind of serious medical event was, was yeah, that, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you've diagnosed 10 days later in surgery. Uh, walk us through that you know, the day of the surgery, what, what kind of went through your mind as you're going, you know, avid bicycle rider. How, how long had you been riding before? Well, I had been racing for about 15 years. I kind of, you know, I was 54. I kind of became a master racer. The, obviously, you know, the great riders are young kids. Um, uh, I blew out my knee playing basketball, which, and I was a handball player. So those kind of things, when you just rip your ACL out. Uh, I fought it for a while. I wore a brace, but the doctor called it behavior modification. And <laughs> I said, I don't know what that is. And he said, okay, we'll get to your brace. So I tried to play handball and I just couldn't move side to side. Couldn't do anything, you know, and plus I'm 5'9", so basketball really is not a strong <laughs> suit for me. I think so, there's other signs pointing to yes. your lack of success other than your injury in so, basketball at least. Um, it was interesting. When I blew up my knee, I became very inactive, and I had to find something, and I found bicycling. And, and then it, the competitive nature of myself drew me into racing, which is really a thrilling thing. So you're, you're on the day of the surgery dealing with the uncertainty of having been a competitive, an avid cycler for 15 years. How, what does that look like in, on that day? What's going through your mind? Well, it's interesting because uh, Dr. Scharschmidt said, whatever you do, don't. Google sarcoma. 
Because that's what, yeah. you know, I've talked to, I've talked to hundreds of survivors now, and when they get diagnosed, generally they go to the internet and they yeah. look up their disease. And I didn't. Sometimes you, you have a bond with a physician, oncologist, uh, and I just trusted him, so I didn't. And I just kind of put my faith in what he was going to do. And the day of, I was just like, let's go, let's, let's do this. The, the interesting thing was, and this is what I've also found in a lot of survivors, is when you get a diagnosis, there's a, there's a question, do you tell people you have cancer? And you think, that's why, you know, who, why would you not tell? But a lot of people think it's a private matter. They keep it to themselves. And I kept it to myself for about a week. And then I basically put it on Facebook. I sent out emails. I told my friends and my coworkers. And uh, the support and sort of the love that I received was just overwhelming. So I kind of had that in my pocket when I went to surgery, that there's so much support. There were so many people behind me that I felt it just, it was going to go well. You know, you incorporating the community and it seems like that's helped alter your mentality going into the, the whole approach to the, the disease and fighting it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting because my grandfather had cancer. I'd never met him. He died before I was born, but he sort of went into a room and people whispered the word cancer. You know, this was 1940s. And it just, it was, it was something that was like the evil power out there. Um, and then my mother had breast cancer, and it wasn't something that we couldn't talk about. And now I, I wear like, and I'm happy to say, you know, I'm a survivor. I'm happy to say, uh, you know, it hasn't really affected me it hasn't changed me well actually it's changed me quite a bit but <laughs> but maybe for the better i think you know what and you kind of speak about survivor and a lot of people go back and forth with these terms arbitrary terms in some people's eyes in, in that you know am i a cancer patient or am i a cancer survivor and we really feel strongly about this idea that as soon as you're diagnosed and you're fighting this disease you're a survivor because you are surviving the disease particularly those ones that are are chronic in nature that you have to wake up and fight it every day the the simple shift in that i'm a survivor and i'm fighting this disease can do a lot for your mindset in it oh absolutely and uh, there are some people that don't like the term survivor because they don't like the battle they don't like the war analogy i i have heard a lot of people i don't like the word survivor i want to be a cancer person there was a uh, a really uh, wonderful man and he's in the final stages. I mean, he's telling you he's not going to be here for Christmas. And he just said, call me anything you want. Call me a cantaloupe. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I'm here. I'm breathing. And, uh, you know, I'm going to miss this world, but it's it's a wonderful world. I think what you were asking about is how do you draw power? And I did it through all my friends, neighbors, and I just draw on their energy. And there's, there's something to that. There's, you know, you can't quantify it, but there's something to that. So let's fast forward a little bit to your, you've gotten past the surgery, you're in recovery, kind of walk us through what that recovery looked like. Well, so of course my sarcoma, it couldn't have been, you know, if it's going to be in some muscle, it couldn't have been in my bicep, but it had to be in my thigh. <laughs> of course, as a cyclist, as a cyclist right. 
So they, they basically took out one and a half of my quadriceps. And there's a big 12-inch scar running down the inside of my thigh. The recovery, I mean, it was just, in, the pain was unbelievable. Really? Um, you know, I'd never had stuff get out of me before. And I, the little victories were being able to get down the stairs on one legs, and then, you know, small victories like putting weight on your leg. I had to relearn how to walk in that certain muscles in your quads fire you know, the action of taking a step and drawing your leg back and pushing it out. And um, one of the guys on my cycling team, his name was uh, Matt Briggs. He's here at Ohio State. He's a physical therapist. He teaches at the school. He's a cyclist. He's a triathlete. And um, I, I went and worked with him twice a week for a long time just to learn how to walk again. And um, strengthening other muscles to take over for the ones that were removed. Um, the big fear is when you know you take out the inside quadriceps and then the outside is gonna pull my kneecap way over to the side and then I've got all kinds of funky problems. But we haven't had that problem yet. Did, did it get to a point where you felt like you didn't have any left to right differences? Um, and if if it did, you know, how long did it take to get to that feeling where you're, you're like, oh, I'm good, I'm as strong as in the affected leg as it was in the other? Or do you still see those deficits day to day? Well, their goal, Matt's goal, was to get me to 80% uh, left to right deficit. So 80% of my left leg, would, which is my bad leg, would have 80% of the strength of my right leg. And he said, we get to 80% and life is beautiful. So, you know, I was doing uh, leg presses and, you, you know, I got to 80%. Um, wall squats... Um, it, I don't have a left-right side power meter on my bike. I just have the single number, so I can tell you what my power is, and it's not as good as before the, the cancer. But if I had a left-right, I could tell you what the difference in power between my left and right is, um, and I'd love to know that number. But you're you're going through rehab. You're learning how to walk. How long before you're back on the bike riding, doing what you love? Surgery was the end of March. I got on the bike probably July. Because it was really interesting, you know, think about turning over the pedals of a bicycle, is that my left leg could go down, but it couldn't come back up. If you ever do single leg pedal drills, where you take one foot out of the pedal and you try to pedal the other one, my left was just not coming back. It would go down and not come back up. So that was a, a strange skill that I had to incorporate other parts of my you know, hip flexors and quadriceps and hamstrings to, to get that to go. It's still, there's still a, a flat spot on my, um, in my cadence on my left side, but you know, I, I ride rollers in the winter, so if you're uneven in your pedal stroke, you're gonna ride right off the rollers, and I, and I don't ride off the rollers, so I'm able to compensate for it. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So rehab with any injury is can be miserable and it can be torturous psychologically. How did that look when, when you're you have this goal of getting back to being, you know, almost full rider? Um, were there any kind of lower points and, and was there any points where you're like, you know what, screw it, I'm I can't do this? There just once. 
it was just like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I mean, I just remembered that it was one time. And other than that, again, you know, the support I had, plus the amazing thing about when you, when you work with somebody, Matt and his partner, John DeWitt down at, uh, at Ohio State, you know, they work with guys from Ohio State football team and basketball team, and they're working with me. Every time, this is that competitive thing. You go in and they challenge you a little bit. You know, you're trying to do, you know, step up on a box and step up on a higher box. And, um, you know, they know what buttons to push. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're somebody's grandfather, obviously they're not going to push them like they would push me or they would push you or they would push a basketball yeah, player. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you kind of have that as the challenge, uh, they know how to do that. And so I kind of had this idea that I wanted to get back on the bike and they said, well, we'll get you back on the bike. And so they set a goal and it was achievable. What did that first day outside on the bike, how did that feel? You mean when grandmas yeah. and grandpas are riding back faster than me by <laughs> me that day? No, the, when I got out to ride, it's interesting because, you know, you usually train with a bunch of people. And, you know, I for that first summer, I mostly rode by myself. But it, it's an interesting thing because I specifically, you know, you get out in the country and there's some cows. And I remember riding by some cows and just saying, hey, cows. And they look at you. And I just said, guess what? I'm alive. I mean, it, it was a weird, it's like some stupid movie thing, but I said it and, and I, and maybe we'll edit that out of this. But no, I think I, that's, that's that, a, I mean, I said that because yeah. I felt that, you know, it's not like I'm back. Um, but I'm back. I think that's one of the most powerful things you've said so far and that you, you feel like you've kind of reclaimed at least part of your life and being able to go out and do those things on your own. Um, so what was the reason for, for biking on your own versus in a group initially? Just getting my own, getting into my own head. You know, you go, there's a lot of conversation and people yeah, talking smack on the bikes and you know, all that stuff <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah. really want to do. Uh, but just getting out there and breathing some air and, and, and just getting into my own head, thinking about life. Because, you know, one of the things I'm sure you've seen and one of the things, and if we want to talk about this class at Ohio Wesleyan, is all the people we've interviewed is after that first day when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. And you have to decide who you are uh, and if you like that new person. <laughs> so part of that, you know, is deciding who that new person is. And what that new person wants to be and how that new person wants to uh, live his life or her life. So you're back on the bike. Everything's going well for seemingly a year or so or maybe more. And then you get hit with this this new diagnosis. Um, so walk us through that. Walk us through, you know, you're back. Everything's good. At what point do you kind of start to feel a little bit iffy again? And then, you know, how does this second diagnosis come along? So... Uh, this sarcoma, as I told you, is 1% of cancers. And then people that are older, you know, people in their 50s that get sarcoma are like 1% of 1%. Uh, 
So I'm back seeing my general practitioner, the one that found the sarcoma, uh, just my yearly uh, physical. And he said, yeah, I don't like these, this white blood count. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, I'm going to send you back to the James. And so I was like, I feel fine. Why are we going back? <laughs> <laughs> so, so he sends me back, and they have to do a genetic test. I think it's called a fish test. Uh, and it comes up with uh, the CLL, this, this chronic uh, um, leukemia. Um, and again, it's a disease that strikes people 75 years old and older. So I'm, again, the minority in a disease. Um, Just getting the short end of the stick. Yeah, it's a strange thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, I went back to see Schmidt. And he said, from what he, he understands, there's probably only 10, maybe 20 people with both sarcoma and CLL in the country. I mean, it's just nutty. Insane. But it's, it's again, it's a, well, it's totally different. It's unrelated. It's a blood cancer. It's much more difficult than sarcoma. I mean, they haven't chopped anything out of me, but I'm at stage zero. There's no treatment until you get sick. You know, so that attack is off the table. Um, the folks at the, the uh, hematology clinic are just like, well, we have to wait till you have symptoms, and then we'll treat you. And getting that diagnosis, knowing that, has sort of plunged me into this whole world of cancer survivorship. Um, and meeting you, talking to folks about nutrition, um, talking to people about meditation because the deal with chronic uh, lymph lymphocytic uh, leukemia is that it's a it's a it's part of this whole inflammation thing and the best way to to keep it at bay to push out when it's going to appear is keeping my stress level down keeping inflammation down and you know you know about inflammation of through exercise through diet through stress and all those things. And that's more of a challenge than let's cut this out and rock and roll because it's a, it's a day-to-day -day thing. It's a, it's a lifestyle thing. Um, and it's got me thinking and meeting people like you and uh, meeting others that don't want cancer to be a disease in which institutions only react to. I don't think is, is the way medicine should be. There should be proactive approaches to just about everything, including cancer. Um, if we wait till there's symptoms and then we'll react, it's just too late. Um, so I'm interested in all the things to keep to keep inflammation down. You know, all the things that are going to keep this from visiting me, and you know, it's sort of a way to attack again. Anyone who spends more than five minutes around you can tell how much of a, a driven you know and competitive person you are how did that feel to be diagnosed with this new disease and be told well we can't attack and we just sit and wait again I w there was silence because I was like well what's the treatment let's do something no let's not do anything okay doc what should I do you know should I exercise yeah you should get some exercise should I, <laughs> you know should I should I change my diet? Yeah, well, you should eat 
healthy. And I was like, no, I need to do something specific. And so I pushed this um, oncologist and he said, okay, if you want to do something, cut out white flour, white sugar, and white rice. And I said, okay. And there was silence. He looked at me like, you know, for years I, I've been telling people that, but nobody ever listens. <laughs> and I was like, done. You know, um, I already have avoided gluten. I found it's, it's uh, an in inflammatory with respect to my cycling. Um, so it was just, it was like, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Um, and, and, you know, institutions were just not prepared to do that. So it's much more difficult than the sarcoma. So you leave there, and you've just been told, well, we'll wait and see. No, no treatment options, just kind of go out into the world and, and keep living your life. And how, how do you respond to that when they say, well, you know, if something happens, we'll come back and fix it. But for right now, just keep going and doing what you're doing. And of course, as you said, you can't, it changes. And so what changed for you as, you know, aside from pestering <laughs> for answers, what changed for you moving forward then? Quite a bit because, um, you know, it's, it's this thought, something is trying to kill you and it's coming for you. I can't tell you if it's going to be here in six months or 20 years. Don't worry about it. It's like saying, <laughs> it's like saying imagine a white elephant in this room. Now just ignore it. And you can't, obviously. So it's really difficult uh, to know this is coming for you. And you have no symptoms. So eh, you start to get the sniffles and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Or, you know, you feel your lymph nodes and... You know, I asked my wife, Is it, does this feel like it's a little larger than normal? <laughs> so, you know, you start to get a little paranoid, and, you know, it's really difficult. So that's why I started to, to, to start investigating stuff and, and meeting people like you and, and reading and try to find fine-tune it for yourself um, because – one of the things, again, in this class, talking to all of the cancer survivors, is the question of autonomy or self-determination that cancer survivors want to have some control. They don't just want to be on the conveyor belt and people doing things to them. Um, they want to be able to be a participant in their own lives. Um, and again, when somebody, some hematologist says live your life and when you get sick I'll treat you it doesn't sit well with me did your exercise or did your did your daily you know fatigue levels or anything like that differ you know following your diagnosis did you notice any difference in in how you exercised or how your your energy levels were I think I don't recover as well from hard workouts okay because of the elevated white blood cell count now I, I can't quantify that you know, I would need somebody to quantify it for me, or maybe it's just that I'm 57 years old now, <laughs> as you laugh at me. But <laughs> but that's also, you know, I, I, I used to, when I was racing, you know, you do these crazy interval workouts, and you just trash yourself. Um, and it's sort of hard to do this now, and I don't know. 
combination of all those things. So you you know, for those who are listening, I met Mark, and as I said, one of the most driven people you've meet, and typically I meet cancer patients, survivors, and, and they they look for information, but don't have that that drive and just give me what I need to do and do it. And so much so that Mark just pestered me until I met with him and pestered me till I gave him a program and just kept pestering me. And and for me, it's inspiring to see. And you've done so much since then. So, you know, we met in January-ish of 2016 and it's been a year and a half since. So, so tell us, you know, you've been involved in so many things for cancer patients, survivors. Tell us, you know, what that drive is about and, and what you've been up to in terms of of trying to get some more information and trying to get some programs set up. Okay, so as I've been trying to pull information and and try to figure out what's going on, um, I became a uh, cancer policy and advocacy team member for an organization called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, and that was this year. Uh, I've just started with these folks, and they've been around for 30 years now trying to advocate on the behalf of cancer survivors. The second thing is I was asked to be on this governing board for a, a project that's looking to the nutritional needs of cancer survivors, and this is out of Tufts University. Um, the interesting thing is, is that cancer survivors' nutrition, and we're talking about after diagnosis, is actually worse than before across the board. It's either... I'm going through chemo, I don't have time to prepare healthy food, so I'm gonna eat crap. Or I can't taste the food. Um, you know, I talked to one woman, she said, uh, I, well actually two women in this one interview, and they both said, when I was in chemo, my taste buds were blown. The only thing I could taste was sugar, and I, we, they both became sugar addicts. I mean, just that's the only thing they could taste. Um, and then again, the other side of that, and this is what uh, Tom Sharschmidt told me, is that kids, 15 to 29 year olds, I'm calling kids, but um, they actually, you know, they're indestructible before they're diagnosed with cancer. That's why we send 18 year olds to war. Nothing could kill them. But he said, once these kids are diagnosed, they, their diets are horrible. And then they, some of them abuse drugs, some of them abuse alcohol, um, because that indestructible thing gets flipped so fast, and then they can't deal with uh, the sarcoma. So that's a kind of an interesting board. I don't know how we're going to deal with nutrition. We just started this project in, in Boston. Um, and then I helped co-create at Ohio Wesleyan this uh, qualitative research on cancer survivorship with uh, Dr. Christopher Fink, just kind of looking into the cancer survivor experience. You know, one of the students, really smart kid, uh, talked about his perception of, of, of cancer survivors post-treatment. And he said, I watched the movie The Shawshank Redemption the other night, and they seem like deinstitutionalized inmates because in the Shawshank Redemption one of the guys who had been in jail for 30, 30, 40 years, whatever um, he's released on parole and he gets out into the world he has no idea what to do with himself so he, he goes back where it's safe and, and one of the things that we heard from all these cancer survivors is that 
institutions treat, 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 and when they're done treating, they they just send you out into the world. Um, and that reentry is actually worse than the than the diagnosis. Um, everybody that we've talked to have said when they ring the bell at chemo, you're done with chemo. That sort of uh, circle of people that are caring for you disappears, and you're on your own. They're lost across the board. Survivors are basically telling us that explosion at the end of treatment is the it was the worst thing that ever happened to them. And across the board, most of them go through that experience alone. It's crazy to think about. And the, the, there's 24 million of us in America that are cancer survivors. And, you know, do, do all 24 million of them have to deal with this sort of deinstitutionalization, this kind of cancer island themselves? It's nutty. And that's what's driving me crazy is, you know, cancer's been around since the Egyptians. Um, you know, my grandfather had cancer, my mother had cancer. And why aren't we doing something? Yeah, that's it's so powerful to hear. And um, I think the, the things you're doing with the, the Coalition for Cancer Survivors will do a lot to help that. So let's, let's dive into a little bit of that, kind of touch a little bit more on what that coalition is and then maybe some of the history and or the initiatives you have got going forward. Well, they're, they're basically doing two things. They are dealing with um, the legislators. So we're going to D.C. in June to go meet our representatives um, and just let us let them know, hey, you know, we're a few of the 24 million and you're going to vote on the Affordable Care Act, which one of the provisions is pre-existing conditions don't disqualify you from having insurance. And, you know, that may go away. One out of every two men, one out of every three women in this country will have cancer in their lifetimes. One out of every two men, one out of every three women. So if you're going to slash uh, health care, if you're going to get rid of pre-existing conditions, there's going to be a lot of hurting folks out there, and they're voters. That's the message they should know. They are voters, 50% uh, of the men and 33% of the women. Um, so that's one arm of it. The other arm of it is how do we take the idea of, of empowering survivors back to our community? You know, I'll come back and try to meet with the folks at, uh, at the James and the other cancer centers and just let them know we need to move this needle a little bit forward. You know, the, the, I'm, I'm still inspired by Tom Scharschmidt. Uh, because, you know, he recognizes that it's not treatment goodbye. It's you still have to live the rest of your life. And there are so many other things that we have to do. Um, you know, think about dental care. Uh, insurance companies came up with this brilliant idea that we're going to give you a dental checkup every six months, and they, that saves them money down the road from major dental work and then um, at age 50 you can get a colonoscopy paid for by an insurance company and that saves a lot of money from disease and so cancer's got to be the same way and I'm not uh, there, we can uh, the statistics say something like you can reduce major cancers between 50 and 70 percent 50 percent 70 percent are are avoidable 
by lifestyle changes, exercise, nutrition, reducing your stress. 50 to 70% of major cancers, lung, prostate, breast. It's crazy. So why wouldn't insurance companies say, let's save a bunch of money. Let's not have another $300,000 worth of chemo. Uh, let's put some money into making healthy people. Then we won't have to spend the money for all this treatment. What do you think from a survivor's perspective, what would you have liked to see in, in that survivorship care? As you know, Dr. Schertzman is, is unique in that he does kind of stay on board with you, but you've had your treatment, goodbye. What would you like to see in that transitional period? When we talked to the folks at the, at the uh, survivorship uh, clinic at Ohio State, the head of it said, I wish that, if, if I had my wish, that cancer patients from the day of their um, diagnosis were told what's coming. She said cancer patients are going to face, every cancer patient is going to face three things, pain, fatigue, and depression. Now, if we could let you know what's coming, you could be prepared for that, as opposed to we'll deal with your depression when you get it. We'll deal with your pain when you have it. We'll deal with your fatigue. You know, it's... It's, it's what you know, that if I train you to race the marathon, then you'll finish, you'll have a smile on your face, you won't have shin splints, blisters on your feet, and be in a ton of pain. I, I, a friend of mine um, ran a marathon without training at all, and then he couldn't walk for a week. He <laughs> I mean, he, he missed a week of work. Um, but it's the same thing with cancer, I believe, that from diagnosis, let you know it's coming, um, let you know about the fatigue. And so in the studies that you do, talking about aerobic capacity and strength, all of those things will help you go through chemo, help you go through radiation, help you go through surgery, you know, do all that before your treatment, do it during treatment, and then carry it on after treatment so that you're not just as you say, sitting on a couch is not a really a great goal. So I think that cancer survivor services, every cancer patient have a cancer survivor plan. Um, so we write it up, you know, here's your specific cancer. And, you know, do you need to have some strength in your upper body? Did you have mastectomy? Do you, you know, all those things. There's a cancer survivor plan. Okay, everyone, so with this part of the interview, unfortunately, our audio cut out, and myself and Mark chatted for another 20, 25 minutes about various uh, issues and what he's up to in terms of promoting policy change for cancer patients and survivors. So I'm sure I'm going to have him back on the show later on to find out what he's been up to and see how he's progressing with all those groups. But I do want to highlight a couple of groups, uh, this one in particular called Immerman Angels, which is essentially a mentorship group for it's nationwide for cancer patients and survivors everywhere. So you can find people who are going through the same treatment as you, who have the same cancer as you, or whatever the case may be. It's a really, really great group set up to, to give that social support that Mark was talking about that's so important for people during treatment. And I'll share the, the link in the description of our show, but it's called Immerman Angels, and you can go up there and you can either sign up to be a mentor yourself where you can just look for support on there so it's a really a great group and something that I wasn't aware of so I wanted to make sure I got that off along with the National Coalition for Cancer Survivors that Mark's a part of he expressed 
uh, interest in getting more people on on board. So if you want to know more about that, I'll also share the links to that group in the in the description, and I'll also give you Mark's information, his email. Anyone looking to help him with that national coalition and look to really promote policy change for cancer patient survivors, it's it's something that you can really get involved with there. So that's it for this week's episode, folks. Thanks a lot for listening, and um, I hope you've got as much out of that as I did. Uh, feel free to, to pass this on to family members or friends who you may feel benefit from hearing Mark's story and, and what he's what he's getting up to. And thanks for tuning in and look out for next week's episode.